Hello and welcome. I'm Joe Frost here with my co-host Peter Linus. This is Being Human. Hi there. Hi. So you've written uh, banter down here as a note as if that's what we're supposed to do. <laughs> and I think I'd like to tell people that you've locked me in a cupboard basically for some sound reasons. It's about nine o'clock at night uh, and bar the cleaner who seems to be chasing us around the building. We are stuck doing this. I'm not free at all. I'm locked in a cupboard. Joe. Why? Why am I locked in a cupboard? Well, because every other room in this office is made of glass and so the sound is so awful that... <laughs> Genuinely, the store cupboard was the best place we could find to do this. Um, and the cleaner cleans with a hoover until about nine o'clock at night. So, and so <laughs> here we deep, are. With deep irony, we come to you locked in a store cupboard in central London. Somebody help us, please. Yes. So what is on the slate today? OK, so obviously we're still in the being human ecosystem um, and we're looking at freedom over the last few episodes. Today, I thought we could have a little look at freedom and justice starting with maybe some stories that have been swimming around us in regards to how justice is impacted by the idea of power. Absolutely, and there have definitely been quite a few stories out there in the press recently on this. Oh, totally. I mean, just take your pick. In the last few weeks, we've seen Harvey Weinstein, Hollywood producer, largely responsible for kicking off the Me Too movement a few years ago. Um, he's been now convicted of multiple accounts of rape and sexual assault. Then there's uh, Jean Vanier, the founder of the Lach Communities, who... Jean Vanier. What did I say? Jean. Jean, <gasps> Jean Vanier. Surely, anyway. Um, so, yes, um, since he, he died last year, just before he died, there was an investigation opened around uh, behaviour and he has been found to have done multiple um, acts of sexual misconduct over decades around his ministry. Yeah, and then we've seen the Jonathan Fletcher stuff and the Anglican Church. We've seen the yep. Acts 29 stuff more recently. Uh, Steve Timmis has been stood down. Accusations there of kind of misuse of a position and authority, bullying, intimidating behaviour is what's alleged there. So, uh, yeah, it's difficult reading the papers on a daily basis around this kind of stuff. Yeah, there do seem to be just so many stories coming to light around how power... Um, can cause so much injustice. All of these communities and or industries or um, societies as a whole are having now to deal with the fallout of these um, stories and these allegations. And there's just a cacophony of voices crying out for justice, both for victims and then seeking some kind of restorative process to prevent these happen behaviours from happening again in the future. Yeah, and, and some of the stuff to wrestle with that, I mean, we've seen, in fact, the ICSA inquiry in the paper again in the last few days, the institutional inquiry on child sexual abuse, and it's been releasing findings around some stuff in Parliament. And the difficulty is the kind of binary thinking sometimes around this, a victim on one hand, oppressor on the other, and then any act to rid yourself of oppression is, is therefore justified and seen as, as legitimate. Yeah, totally. And I think, for me, that's like the, the ultimate problem there of this binary of victim an oppressor, because as soon as you're pitted as an enemy against someone else, against the other, there is no opportunity then for reconciliation. Um, I was at a, a gathering um, last week where uh, the definition of a society's understanding of sin was offered as whatever society currently finds unforgivable. 
And if it's unforgivable, then there is no opportunity for reconciliation because forgiveness is always the first step in restored relationships. And for me, that gets us to the root of what I want to talk about today. Ah, and what is it that you want to talk about today? <laughs> I would like to talk about um, what impact does a particular understanding of freedom have on what we look for and fight for in terms of justice. Okay, yeah, because we've said in the past that uh, freedom, as we're told by our culture on their story, the cultural story, is understood as freedom to control, freedom to choose. It's all about us being in control, us making those choices. And you can see how that kind of cue leads to the misuse, the abuse of power by people like Harvey Weinstein uh, and the sort of stuff that the institutional inquiry is picking up on. People in power choosing their freedom but misusing it against others. Yes, yes. And then, therefore, justice becomes the ability to to regain that autonomy, to take back one's ability to choose, to have control, to assert their own rights um, and to stay safe from controlling forces of, of external figures so that somebody else can't use their power over an individual. Justice is also then seeking retribution for oppression or the imposition of control. And then justice then seeks parity, the sameness of choice and privilege. All of these understandings come from this, uh, this flow of freedom where it's primarily concerned with the rights of the individual or of a perceived victimised or marginalised group. Yeah, and we've been chatting about that because the justice definition then becomes really important. So we've talked about how we define freedom, but how do we define justice? So in the biblical text, we've got mishpat, the kind of punishment justice. So often people say, I want justice, particularly in my own culture in Northern Ireland. People say, we want justice. What they really mean is, I want to see somebody punished for that. I want to see kind of retribution, revenge, even you know through the state. Um, but the, the biblical text also has this word, siddiqe, about right relationships. And that is a, a, another understanding of justice, that when we live in right relationship, that's what true justice looks like. And the more we have siddiqe righteousness, the right relationships, um, or justice, then the less we need the mishpat, the punishment aspect of that. But our society really essentially has the one lens. It wants punishment. That's its only understanding of what justice looks like. Yes, absolutely. Because at that point, we go back to this idea that sin is unforgivable. So you're always looking for punishment. You're always looking for that kind of um, retribution. So we would argue that we need to reframe this narrative and bring in a different understanding of freedom. Yeah, and we've been arguing that hopefully consistently. Hopefully you've kind of caught that. Freedom <laughs> is about maximising flourishing, not minimising constraints. It's found in relationships. It's not about autonomy, about my individual set of choices. It's ultimately found in Christ in sacrificing ourselves for and on behalf of the other. It's the very opposite of what we've been reading about recently in the news. Yes, and if we look at the freedom that we get from the Genesis paradigm, so if you remember back to when we were talking about Genesis 1, Revelation 22, this full story, this full arc um, of what it means to be human found in the biblical narrative, our freedom comes all the way back in Genesis um, where Adam and Eve are walking and knowing God, access to the tree of life. It comes from a relationship from the source of life himself. Yeah, absolutely. And our, our good friend Rich, who does really give the theological input behind the scenes, has been pointing out to us who we are uh, to be as human beings becomes clear 
as we understand better whose image it is that we bear. So we have been both advocating this bigger story arc and just to be crystal clear, like Jesus is at the centre of that story. Yes, because at the centre of the story, Jesus is there reminding us what it looks like, what it means to be human. And then the cross comes as that focal point where justice becomes the action of restoring right relationships. Justice and righteousness meet right in the middle, are totally interrelated concepts. Justice is all about how we relate to others, how we affirm their value, their dignity. Um, If justice is only about rights and responsibilities and choice and control, we have missed the whole point of who Jesus is and who he points us to be. Yes. So we're totally, absolutely in agreement on that. Um, but we have, I suppose, jumped a little ahead there and into some theology. Actually, I think you did that rather unusually. Um, and so we have kind of let people into the secret that we're locked in a broom cupboard that I'm actually apparently not even allowed to breathe, you keep telling me, because we're re-recording this episode because there were some tech issues and sound issues. Um, and so we wanted to throw in some fresh stuff that was going on in the news. But we also want to dig back into one of our recurring themes, particularly in this first season around technology. Um, So we've got these technologies that we've talked about. They appear freeing. Very obvious mobile phone means you do not have to be in one place to make a phone call. That appears amazing, except when people can get you all the time. The laptop means you can take your computer anywhere. But we are beginning to realize we're we're fully aware. I think now the email means we can be so easily reached while we're out of the office. We're not free. We're actually more connected than ever. We are hyper-connected. And we've been making the case a critical year in that. It was 2007, because we're that old. We've reflected back as to when it was things like the iPhone were launched, that Facebook and Twitter really came to prominence. Uh, And I think for some people listening, they're going, this has just always been the word of this woman, is having those. For some of us, we've maybe seen that transition, but haven't really noticed just how pivotal it became at a particular time. And I think we will look back and maybe already are and saying, gosh, that was a game-changing year. Just look at the amount of time we spend on our phones. When I look at my, that thing, was it screen time? Whatever it comes up as, tells me how long I've spent the phone every day. And I'm thinking that wasn't possible 12 years ago. Why are we talking about this? Because I used to have a Nokia 6310 and the only thing you could do was play Snake on it. It was so expensive to make a call way back then. So you could spend like a maximum of 20 minutes on the phone and now you could spend hours and hours. And why do we spend hours and hours? Because these guys are involved in digital distraction. They want us to use our time on these kind of devices. Okay. I mean, I will give you 2007 was a very pivotal year. Um, I remember starting my master's in PR and comms in late 2006 and really just hearing about Facebook, um, really for the first time in so much as there was this thing, social media, it was just starting to tip. By the end of my master's in the summer of 2007, Facebook and social media was a major strand in all of our public campaigns. Yeah, and so we're saying, look, these devices are not as freeing as they set us up to be. In fact, they hold kind of monopoly levels of control over us and our information. And so we have a problem with them. We do. And I think the reason why we're talking about this today is not only that you're obsessed about Facebook and technology, but also the power these technology companies have. So if we start with what does misuse of power and how does misuse of power affect right relationships and affect justice, then when we look at the technology, when we look at companies or even information itself, 
What does that mean to justice? What does that mean to freedom if those things are held in a monopoly? Yeah, so Facebook uh, is a really global provider. In fact, is the internet essentially in certain parts of the world. So it's a profit-making business. Um, but um, essentially, where government and market forces uh, can't meet the needs of people in, in certain areas, uh, what happens is that, the, that, that someone like Facebook essentially has become the internet in uh, Myanmar. That's just the reality of what's going on. So in a country like that, which has really light internet kind of provision, Facebook has adapted itself uh, and to become the only thing that really works on, on the World Wide Web, on the internet provider there. And why that is so significant, not only for Myanmar, where we will get into what's happened there and why that was such a newsworthy story, but it, equally we understand the internet to be this open source, open access, information, knowledge, humanity coming together. But when that internet is owned by a company, a profit-making business, that's not open access, that's not open resource, that's control, that's power. And Myanmar is where that went really wrong. Yeah, because the military leaders there were able to organise campaigns over Facebook. Um, they were found by the UN uh, to be the key internet provider and yet to be insufficiently prepared for what was going to happen. So the New York Times had a, had a headline. It just said, a genocide incited on Facebook. And Facebook itself has now admitted it was too slow to act. And the UN has published reports being really clear. Uh, Facebook did not do what it should have done in that moment and actually allowed itself to be used as a channel of hate speech. Yes, so this di basic power dynamic kicked in, didn't it, where Facebook is being used and to some extent siding with an oppressive government, but tapping, but we don't care because they tap into our needs to be connected, to be distracted, um, to to hear what's going on and post whatever Facebook things we want to post next time. And we don't care what's happening on the other side of the world because it's meeting our needs over here. Yeah, so Facebook were allowing, just to be really crystal clear, they're allowing their platform to be used by those in power, the Myanmar military dictators, to perpetuate a genocide, to push out information that led people in that direction. And Facebook, in our view, is all about free access and freedom of information and, and freedom of relationships and connecting online, but it's actually being used to do the exact opposite in another part of the world. And essentially, we kind of don't care. Yeah. Uh, Nelson Mandela said in a speech once that millions remain enslaved and in chains at a time of breathtaking advances in technology and wealth. Um, mm. he, he, he went on to say overcoming poverty isn't a gesture of charity. It's an act of justice. It is the protection of fundamental human rights. Everyone everywhere has the right to live with dignity, free from fear and oppression, free from hunger and thirst, free to express themselves and associate at will. Yeah, it's just it's so good on that. It's just such a such a great kind of quote and from him. So I don't know if you've seen Just Mercy yet. How's your cinema viewing these days? No, it is on my bucket list, but I have not got there yet. Okay, so I slightly confess I haven't seen it. I've just read lots about it. We went to go and see it. Our local cinema wasn't showing it, so we ended up in 1917. But yeah. I'm a lot tangent down there. That's good, that's good. Anyway. <laughs> so it's based on the autobiography of a civil rights lawyer and campaigner, Brian Stevenson. Um, uh, just an amazing movie and, and I've always found his comment about poverty really helpful um, the opposite of poverty is not wealth it's justice oh that is so good 
Yes. Yes, because it starts to acknowledge the idea that poverty isn't simply about a lack of money in the bank, but rather this idea of of disfavouring that poverty is conditional of external forces, like where you happen to be born rather than who you are. And, and, and it clusters, doesn't it, in this resulting impoverished communities where lack of access to education, safe, secure housing, good jobs, decent health provision, all become justice issues all rooted around poverty. Yeah, and massive poverty and inequality are terrible scourges of our times. I think this is Mandela again, I think. But anyway, times in which the world also boasts breathtaking advances in science, technology, industry and wealth accumulation. So on the one hand, the story is things are going so well, but the reality is we also have growing poverty and growing inequality. Yes, all rooted because we fail to understand what freedom is. As long as freedom is about choice and control, those those discrepancies, those gaps between mass poverty and breathtaking advances will always be there. I, I think it's impossible to have a conversation around freedom and human flourishing without talking about poverty and justice. Yes, we think they're absolutely linked concepts. You know, our freedom from bondage enlivens an awareness in us that is orientated towards others who are trapped. That's the reality. If justice is about right relationship, and freedom on the cultural narrative is so individual set of choices, those two things are going to be at odds. And so we're going to find ourselves in conflict with some of the prevailing cultural story. Yes. So even when we talk today about this idea that the slavery of people um, is at, at, at just record-breaking numbers, there's trafficking, there's addiction, there's environmental poverty, there's institutional discrimination, there's religious ethnic persecution... All of this helps us know that we need to navigate this back to this biblical narrative and understand poverty, justice, freedom all find their roots um, in this big story. And especially through the Exodus paradigm, where we see God really demonstrate his freeing liberation character for his people. Yeah, we, we just love this passage. I think we both share a real affinity with this. Uh, God meets Moses in the desert at the burning bush. And just imagine Moses was on his phone and he just walked past that bush. You know, it wasn't totally unusual for a bush to be on fire, but it was unusual to be on fire, but not burning up. Did you just say, imagine Moses on his phone? Yeah, so imagine he was distracted <laughs> in our ear. You just, if that happened today, you could just walk right past it. You just okay. watch people on their phones. So I'm not saying he had a phone. Um, so, you know, God meets Moses in the desert and he said, I have heard my people's cry. I, you know, and we see the same sentiment in Luke when Jesus' heart cry goes out to the crowd. He's just so moved with compassion for them. Yes, yes. The, this, this paradigm, this story of Exodus here um, that flows into the New Testament, this idea around liberation theology that God even ties his name to setting his people free in Egypt. This liberation theme is so critical throughout the Old Testament and all the way into the New. The Exodus is this act of revolutionary freedom. God his total response to Israel's total need. 
Yeah, so Chris Wright, who's a theologian who uh, kind of took on the work of John Stott uh, through the Langham Trust, uh, really involved there. He's written really excellent works on the Old Testament, Old Testament ethics and theology and some stuff on that. Um, but he talks about Exodus and how framing it is for our whole understanding of God as a God on mission, of mission and on mission. And he talks about the physical, social, economic and spiritual freedom that comes about in the Exodus text. Um, and Chris and others would argue that Exodus is the prime lens, really, through which we see the entire biblical mission of God set out in the Bible. That's why God puts his name to, as you said, he, he stamps his name, kind of Yahweh on it. When Moses says, who shall I say sent me? God says, I am who I am, or I, I will be who I will be. I'm going to reveal myself in this story, in this moment. This is how my people will know me. Yeah, I think I think sometimes we have this tendency when we read the, the Exodus story of God rescuing his people out of Egypt, that we spiritualize it. We we say God is uh, Jesus is setting me free or it becomes, again, very individualistic. And we ignore the really tangible, earthed reality sense in which God brought freedom to his people. He heard their cry. He remembered the covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, looked down on the Israelites, and was concerned he had compassion. So he appears in the burning bush, battles the gods of Egypt, and then he wins. Because, of course, Yahweh is the one true God. Yeah, so framing. And then uh, Jesus picks this up in Luke 4. He announces his ministry by quoting from Isaiah, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him to proclaim good news. And what is the good news? To proclaim freedom to the prisoners and to set the oppressed free. And he declares the year of the Lord's jubilee. And this is how Jesus chooses to open his ministry. He chooses that scroll. He reads it out. He wants to frame all that he's about to do through that text. He is the Exodus, the liberating God in flesh, proclaiming jubilee, which is about setting people free. Oh, that is, that is actually really interesting. Now, jubilee is interesting. I want to come back to that. But I love that idea that Jesus once again is that, that center point of pulling all the threads of the narrative together and in him is rooted this idea. Now, we've been talking quite a lot about the influence of Facebook, tech companies, the power, the monopoly they have, and then also how they're shaping our culture and our understanding of what freedom is and what it looks like. And partly that's because they have such a big place in the world that you and I find ourselves in, but also they are so influential. They are the biggest companies in the world and they are so rapidly changing how the world understands what it means to be human. Yes. So three ancient practices um, that we have then talked about that we think reflect some of that freedom from within the biblical text. Uh, they all come from this big biblical story arc that we've talked about. We've mentioned Sabbath. We've talked about that a little previously. Um, we have hinted at Jubilee. You moved us on because you knew I wanted to talk about it. And we are going to get there. And then I'll let, we want to talk as well about the Passover meal. And we, the reason is that we see the three coming together in, in this freedom narrative. Where I was raised Sunday was all about the rules. 
could you play football in the garden? You couldn't play football on a team, but you could play in the garden. You could uh, not watch TV, but you could listen to the radio. You couldn't buy a Sunday paper, but you could buy a Monday paper that was produced on a Sunday. Um, it, was a, it was a serious set of rules you just had to navigate in a more conservative Christian culture, shall I say. But I think we fairly consistently said that we don't really feel that that's the point of Sabbath, I think. Yes. So at odds with that, so the Bible has set up Sabbath to set people free from debt and from bond to allow them to rest, to have time with their families. True freedom is exercised in the context of relationships and the responsibilities that come with that. And yes, even the odd rule sometimes, of course. Um, so we need to reimagine what that looks like and try and, yeah, re, I suppose reimagine and re-understand Sabbath, Jubilee and Passover. Yes, and I think what I love about that is this, the idea that we've talked about God placing um, the privilege on time time that allows us to invest in and maintain right relationships with those immediately around us it's not about um about those rules it's not about control it's not about um your rights or or anything like that it is about restoring those immediate relationships um and i think that is so significant when it comes to understanding this idea of justice and freedom. Yeah, Sabbath is not about rest, but it's about worship. Uh, sorry, it's about rest, not worship. Sorry, that's where we get it wrong. Oh, can't believe we got this. So let's just say that again. It is about rest and not about worship. It was set aside as a day of rest to be in relationship with other people. It's a shared day like that. Um, and then it builds from the Sabbath day that has that into the Sabbath year. And there's lots we could say about that, of course, but um, I'll not I'll restrain myself. But that was again about restoring and letting the land rest. There was a fallow year. Farmers still have it to this day to allow the land to recover to to bring forth crops and the one thing i will say is you on the seventh year you did leave your land open so the animals came in and fed off it and the stranger and the alien so it was about the poor poor how do you say that in england people with less money coming in um (laughs) and it was about the animals even coming in and feeding it was a marvelous act even on the sabbath year yes so you start with this once a week the immediate relationships. You start with your relationships with your land and your place once uh, once every seven years. And then we get into this Sabbath of Sabbaths, this 50-year jubilee, which is designed to just completely uh, reverse all the injustices that had happened through a generation. Yeah, it counters our natural acquisitiveness as human beings. I think as Brueggemann says it like that, and it's sort of just sits against some of the things that happen in our world and it's a it's a reframing again it reminds us the earth is the lord's and everything in it so we're giving it back to him it reminds us who's in control that god's in control and we kind of forget that because we get everything from the supermarket we don't get it from the land (laughs) forgetting that it has to come from that ultimately and it reminds us we're part of an extended family messy as that can be and jubilee breaks off the power of money you know, it's not supposed to be a perpetual thing that just lasts forever and ever. Um, it, it, land gets reset every 50 years. It gets not redistributed, it gets put back to those who originally had it. Um, and so you get a stake in the land at every stage. And it's about the environment because the animals were to be blessed in that moment too. And so as you said, it's, it's around time. It's this incredible idea that God blessed time. And in the process, that ended up sanctifying place. Most religions have a, have a holy place you need to go to. You travel to Mecca or to a religious site. God sanctified time. But in that, he blessed human beings. Uh, and as a consequence, places became interesting and holy too. But time is the fundamental in that. I love that. I, I think 
I think if we if you track the arc of this, then what you are seeing is the justice acts of Sabbath around the immediacy, around uh, the Sabbath year, around your place, and then the Jubilee, this restoration, not just of your immediate relationships, but of societal relationships, when God declares that the sins of the father will not now be passed on to the sons, those generational injustices can't be carried on. Jubilee becomes something where injustice and relationships are restored. That's such a powerful thing. Yeah, and, and so often I think there's a framing that says, well, Exodus in particular and the Ten Commandments that come after, well, they're a set of rules and don't do this. Sabbath is all around Sunday and what you can't do. And, and Jubilee is, again, a kind of set of rules designed to restrict. But actually... The Bible doesn't say any of that. It's completely flipped. This is all about releasing. This is about restoring relationships. It's about resetting the clock. It's about honoring God. And that's why the prophets, when they rail against Israel and say, look, you guys dropped the ball. That's the kind of message version of it. It says what you did was you didn't honor the widow and the orphan. You didn't uh, watch and look out for Sabbath and for Jubilee. And so in the process, you trampled over other people. The whole idea of Jubilee is you couldn't amass large amounts of land. But what they were doing was they were knocking down the walls, putting the fields together, building big houses and squeezing out the poor. And so the prophets say, "Uh uh-uh, God says no. And if you don't wise up, you're going to find yourselves in exile. Yes. So that's so interesting, isn't it? Those widows, those orphans, the poor, the foreigner, Tim Keller describes them as the uh, the vulnerable quartet, and he talks about the the Bible's preoccupation about Yahweh's preoccupation with those vulnerable people in society. And what I find fascinating is they're the same ones we have today. Yeah, and that's our prophetic role today to speak up for those who have no voices. And and today that's the single parent families, that's the kids stuck in the care system, that is the poor, uh, the immigrant, those who are most at risk of injustice in in this world that we live in. I I find it fascinating that they haven't changed. And I think for me, that's why it reminds me of the conversation that Jesus has with Judas at Simon's house. You know, the scene where Jesus is uh, is at the dinner party, he's lounging around, the woman comes in, anoints his oil, his feet with the um, alabaster jar of perfume and Judas kicks in with, what a waste. She's wasted all that money that could have been given to the poor. And Jesus turns around to him and says, the poor you will always have with you. Now, I've heard that line used as an excuse for not caring about the poor or doing anything to fight the injustice of poverty. But for me, that's a massive misreading of what that line is talking about. It's not that the poor are always going to be, there's always going to be poverty, but rather the poor are always going to be around us and we are always going to be ministering to them the year of the Jubilee. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an incredible story. I remember preaching on it once and using perfume because it just it's so visceral and it takes all the senses in that moment and pouring that out and then people and smelling it and the connections for people and he's just absolutely pointing us towards what our role is to reach out to the poor and those who are voiceless in this moment. Yes, and not just to reach out, but to connect, to be close enough to smell the perfume. I think there's this brilliant scene. I don't, I don't know if you've seen it. Have you seen Years and Years? The No, you haven't. I think I've seen an episode. Come on. So it's this dystopian series on the BBC by Russell T Davis. Uh, okay, so spoiler alert. 
And there's this amazing speech done in the final episode by Gran, the matriarchal figure. Um, It's after the revolution has come. There's been this big brother-esque government. It's been 10,000 days of dystopia and um, crisis. And she gives this speech where she kind of floors the whole family because she declares that it's all our fault She said that we did this to ourselves. And they look at her and go, I didn't do anything. I didn't say anything. Why is this my fault? And she said, it's because we saw a one pound T-shirt and we bought it because we thought it was a bargain. We couldn't resist it. We said, that'll do. We didn't question. We didn't ask questions about how much it cost, what the, the justice was in terms of humanity or in the environmental terms. We deliberately didn't ask because we didn't care. We didn't want to know. And this is where that brought us. And I guess what we're saying is we need to ask those questions. How do we spend our time? Where do we give our attention to? How do we spend our money? Yes, because what do we pay our attention to and what do we willfully ignore? It it ties in for me this question about is Facebook allowed to distract me or do I care what its business practices are? Do I do I stop using Amazon Prime because I'm bothered about the wages and the the work environment they have, or do I need that same day delivery? I'm so challenged by my friends at Tier Fund or World Vision or IJM to be so much more intentional about how I remember and surround myself by those vulnerable quartets. Yeah, it's that quartet in particular. We worked uh, with our friends at CARE on an anti-human trafficking uh, campaign and legislation, actually, in Northern Ireland. And really, the the aim was to criminalise the users, the Johns, as they're called, because you need to go after the traffickers, but that's incredibly hard to catch them. You need to rescue those who are who have been trafficked, uh, the women who are often put into sexual uh, trafficking and, and are sold. Um, but sadly, there's always more to replace them, but we also need to go after the demand. And so what we were trying to shift there, rather than criminalising the woman, um, you were criminalising the men who were buying that service. And, uh, you know, it's so important that we're involved in that kind of work because the challenge are is that we're all part of a global economy. So it's really easy to say, well, human trafficking is bad. That's obviously wrong. But the reality is there's these really long supply chains and we are buying products and we don't know where some of them have come from. We don't know the practices at the far end of those chains. And there are people working hard to try and bring our attention to that. And, you know, back to Gran and your, your, your uh, show there, you need to wonder why a T-shirt can only cost one pound. You know, we don't want to ask that question because if we thought about it for a split second, we'd realise there's no way somebody can be paid fairly for that. There's no way that cotton or whatever material it is has been stewarded well and environmentally to make that T-shirt. But we don't want to ask it. We want the cheap, quick, fast fashion moment and let's not have to think about it. Yes. And for me, it's it's so much more even than that. It's not even that we just need to remember or be conscious or intentional about our buying practices or or where we choose to invest, but it's also around how we surround ourselves with those vulnerable, those marginalised, the people on the edges. Jesus said the poor would always be around us. Yeah, and so one of the ways in which we do that in our church practices, because some of you might remember a long time ago we mentioned Passover, is that communion is this incredible meal where we come together as a church. It's where we share a kind of common table. It's where where we get to do meals with everybody else. And one of the things I love about communion is that there's no hierarchy, there's no menu. You can't go in and order a fine steak. 
everybody gets the same. It's the same access at that moment. It's the same meal that we share. And I know in so many places, we've kind of shrunk it down to a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine. But the principle is that we're all coming together. It doesn't matter how rich or how poor you are. It doesn't matter what you've done right or done wrong in your life. It doesn't matter all those things. It's a wonderful picture of kind of free and equal access into this moment of communion. I heard this incredible story about communion uh, from North Korea. Uh, so there's this American guy visiting, and he was on some, some sort of government-sanctioned trip. Um, but he, he thought he could get away with it. He knew he could, wearing a little fish on his lapel. So he was there in official business, but he was able to do that. So anyway, he was in this rural marketplace, and um, he's going to the bathroom. And uh, this, this Korean guy comes in, uh, it's a very kind of poor rural area, and he, he, he uh, kind of taps him and points at his lapel, the guy's like, okay, interesting, okay. And he tells him to kind of wait there. He, he almost puts his hand up to pause. And the little man runs off and comes back and he brings a kind of a little bottle of Coke. And he offers him the Coke and he's thinking, this is surreal. I'm in a toilet in North Korea and the guy's giving me a bit of Coke. But he keeps pointing at the badge and he suddenly realizes, he said, this guy is a Christian and he's trying to have communion with me. He's got the only thing he could get, which was Coke and I think a packet of crackers. And in, in 30 seconds in a bathroom in North Korea, that guy possibly had the only shared communion experience he's ever had with wow. another Christian. Wow. Oh, that is so good. <laughs> yes, because that reminds us once again, it, it's drawing us to that center of the story all the way back to Jesus, that the communion, the act of sharing in that bread and wine or Coke and a cracker is all about restoring relationships, offering reconciliation. Communion is, is the very act of reconciliation. It's the very act of remembrance. It's this, this revolutionary act of resistance that is de declaring that we are one in Christ, that we are not vulnerable, marginalized, oppressed, victim, oppressor. Jesus is broken for all of us, and all of us can find ourselves at that table. Yeah. Free. And so I know we sometimes jump about. <laughs> so we pulled a few different threads. So, I mean, for us, just to really state that, obviously, like we've got the Exodus experience, but the meal that comes off the back of that, so you. Yahweh does battle with Pharaoh, Yahweh is victorious, but the last of those things has the Passover meal, the annual feast in which Israel remembers God's mighty acts of freedom. That's what they're told to do. Do this with your children, tell them the story, because this is our shaping story as a nation, as Israel, and we're grafted into that story. And so communion then is when we as a church remember God's mighty acts on the cross which profoundly shapes our story, our lives, who we are. And more than that, it's not just our story. That would be the individual narrative at that moment. It's the story of the whole world because the gospel, particularly in that moment of the cross, is public truth. And so we've taken that meal uh, under the instruction of Jesus. And so we share communion. That, that's the bringing forward of Passover in this moment. It's the future rushing into the present. It's a reminder of all that's gone on in the past. Uh, it's just this incredible moment and experience. It's transformational. It's, it's mystical. It's everything. I, I just love communion. Sorry, I don't know what else to say, but it's this marvelous moment of encounter with God. It's beautiful, isn't it? And I think... I think the reason why we want to land here, where we want to say the narrative of freedom that we are fed 
of control and choice, of autonomy and retribution is so insufficient because in the church, the space where different people from different backgrounds, um, those who are marginalised, those who are vulnerable, those who have plenty and privilege, share a common meal because Jesus has done it all. We have argued that because of our shared humanity, because of our relationships, we have freedom, that justice is fighting for and restoring those relationships so that we can be free. And our humanity is shared when we share with others. So what does it look like to share a table? What does it look like to share a meal, whether it's coconut cracker, whether it's in worship around the Lord's table or simply welcoming somebody into your home, across the the workspace, um, on a public park bench eating a sandwich? What does it mean to be amongst those who you would otherwise be estranged from? And what does it mean to share your humanity in that space? Wonderful. I think we're kind of there. What does it mean to be human? To be human is to be free. To be free is to live in just relationships. Uh, and that justice restores our, our true humanity, our true freedom. It brings all of those together. And we all become more human on the journey. That's what we want to do as we share together. So I think that's us. You've challenged us with practices. You've said share a meal. You've said sit down. You've had a conversation with those you wouldn't normally talk to. We've all sorts of public spaces on planes and trains and so many spaces where we do sit with people who have no idea. And what would it look like just to have that one conversation with them, just to push the boat out a little bit and engage with so many different people? we've got these chances to rebuild relationships to shape ultimately a more just world that's what we want to provoke you with we hope you enjoyed we're challenged uh, we're going to look a little more at who knows what next time we'll be back soon be Bye. blessed Bye.